0: This is my these opportunities allowed me to um understand myself because this has not been scripted or to be honest, I didn't prepare anything beforehand so so this is my thinking and um or my lack of. <laughs>
1: and welcome to uh well welcome to clear voices this is a new podcast and this is episode one um i'm matthew turner
2: i'm matthew schaefer
1: and you've you've probably heard if you're into (laughs) podcasts um, related to elt and language teaching you may have heard our voices before
2: uh that's right we're both well we're two of the three um co-hosts of the teflology podcast
1: yep that's right yeah so we've Mm -hmm. we've We've been doing podcasting for a number of years, um, but this is a new project for us um, called clear Voices. Yep. Um, and it's it's very different to our our kind of our current uh, our other other podcast. Um, but yeah, Matt, what 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 is clear Voices?
2: Um, yes. Well, so clear Voices is. It's, I think you came up with a name. I think it's a good name. Did I? Yep. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so basically um, the. Well, it's connected to a website, also called Clill Voices. And so some of the content on the website is audio, uh, such as you're hearing now. Mm -hmm. And some of it, there will also be written content. Um, But basically, I think the idea is to get sort of as diverse a range of perspectives and voices on Clill as possible. Um, So um, as with this current episode, um, we will talk to sort of experts in the field of Clill. Um, But we'll also be talking to people who maybe haven't done a lot of research in CLIL, um, but teach CLIL and -hmm. have a lot of experience with teaching CLIL. um, And even sort of looking into the area of of, uh, sort of having language teachers engage with content teachers.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it was felt that because we're both really into podcasts, into interviews, dialogue. And I think it was felt that maybe CLIL is a good kind of area to have have these conversations because yeah we've got uh, teachers, we've got content experts mm-hmm. and yeah the idea with this project even though I just asked what the project is <laughs> about I think the idea is um, that we kind of bring all those voices together and yeah like Matt said we have we have interviews with uh, content experts we hear voices from the classroom about how teachers are actually teaching their their um their content classes. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we'll we'll also have lots of reflections and responses to to the to the interviews and conversations we put out as well.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I think the idea is it's you know, I understandably it'll primarily be uh, targeted at teachers or researchers who are interested in CLIL. Um but I think you know a lot of <clears throat> well, most language teachers these days will include some kind of content in their course. Yeah, um, so hopefully yeah, a lot of yeah. what we talk about um, will be relevant to, to anyone in language education.
1: Yeah, and certainly from my perspective, that's that's very much where I'm coming at this from. I work in mm-hmm. the tourism faculty. Mm-hmm. And yeah, one of my ongoing kind of concerns, uh, concerns, things that I think about is how to incorporate uh, tourism, genuine tourism content, mm-hmm. like uh I'm kind of lost for a, a better word. Right. There.
2: But just going beyond like the tourism free LT course book.
1: Like robust, I guess like robust research informed mm. like tourism knowledge. How mm-hmm. to incorporate that into my um my teaching, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm um, I'm coming at it from that perspective. Matt, you've got more of a kind of a clil background with your work, I guess.
2: I guess yeah, that one of the courses courses I teach is, you know, explicitly um, labeled a clil course. Um, And it's 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 at a a university and so the the type of CLIL that it is is um, uh, I guess it's soft CLIL technically Mm. um, because it's still um, I think the students still think of it as a language course um, But I think the teachers maybe think of it more as a content course. We're we're allowed to choose what content we we want to teach Um, I think that becomes um, Sort of the the focus for us uh, when we're teaching that course.
1: Yeah, yeah, and Yeah. um, yeah, Clil continues to confuse me as well <laughs> as to what it is, what it isn't, soft and hard. Yeah. So I'm, I'm hoping through this podcast we can kind of unravel what Clil is a little bit more through through a dialogic approach. Mm. I think yep. as well, and we'll we'll be the main hosts, but you know there'll be other episodes where there'll be other voices, other other people, other contributors as mm-hmm. well. Yep. But for this first episode, uh, Matt, you spoke to uh, Professor Dario Benegas.
2: Yes, that's right. Um, so Dario is—I um, I suppose if you if you sort of do read about Clill and that kind of thing, it's, it's his name that will have come up. Um, he's at the University of Edinburgh currently. Um, he's originally from Argentina. I, I can't remember if that comes up in the interview or not, but perhaps. Um, well, certainly his some of the the work that he did in South America. Um, He's, you know, certainly uh, a lot of his research is involved with CLIL, but he also, uh, as as he does mention in the interview, um, work a lot in teacher education. Um, he's also interested in action research, and I think increasingly in the area of inclusive language education. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. That's right. yeah.
2: Um, but certainly for this interview, the focus was on CLIL. Um, but uh, yeah, I think w- one reason we chose him as the first interviewee uh, is because he's sort of, you know. Um, been working uh, in CLIL, and not only teaching CLIL, but uh, training teachers in how to teach CLIL. Um, so we thought he'd be a, a good person to sort of, not necessarily introduce CLIL to our audience, um, but to sort of, I guess, in a way, sort of lay a foundation of of what CLIL is and, and what teachers can expect from it.
1: Yeah, that's right, yeah. So mm-hmm. um, here's, here's Matt's conversation, and we'll be back again at the end to kind of wrap things up.
2: Well, first of all, Dario, as, as I mentioned, you are the uh, inaugural interviewee of this Clill Voices project. Uh, so first of all, um, <laughs> welcome and thank you very much for talking to us. Um, one reason we wanted you to be the first guest uh, is because of sort of how prolific you've been um, in terms of um, writing and researching about CLIL. Um, but I guess just to start, could you give us a sort of, I guess, brief history of your journey as an educator educator, and as a scholar and sort of tell us how you arrived where you are now.
0: Okay, well, thank you, Matt, for for the invite. And um, I started my relationship with CLIL um, back in 2004, I think, three, four, um, and actually, what I discovered, so to speak, first was CBI, content-based instruction. So I was happy with CBI until I, when I uh, did my masters in um, Warwick University, I then was introduced to CLIL more formally, so to speak. And so my relationship with CLIL, uh, which is my longest relationship so far, (laughs) Um, started out there, say, 2008. And I've been interested in it since then. And my interest developed first in practice. So I got to understand, I think, the basics of CLIL. But as I was um, a full-time secondary school teacher, like teaching English as a foreign language back in Argentina. I moved from theory to practice quite quickly, let's say. So my interest was in implementing CLIL. In um, At the time, I was working at this bilingual school, so I was teaching a subject um, in English, and then we had... Uh, these courses on uh, argumentation and critical thinking and literacies and they were um, delivered through the medium of English but it wasn't EMI because we were teaching or we were supporting both content and language and um, so that was the beginning of it so I wouldn't be doing any research back then Um, it was mainly doing CLIL and creating my own materials. And then my formal research on CLIL started in 2010 when I started my PhD again at Warwick University. Um, And since then, I've been working um, uh, on CLIL in terms of research and practice and curriculum development and... um, preparing teachers for CLIL, mainly pre-service teachers, and all my experience comes from, um, from doing CLIL in South America, because well, mainly Argentina, but I am also linked to CLIL projects in Colombia and Ecuador, and now and then I liaise with universities in those countries to um, be part of continuing professional development programs uh, for them or um, in a consultant capacity to evaluate their CLIL programs or um, other initiatives that they are developing around CLIL.
2: Okay, great. Thank you. Um, Well, So in that case, could you maybe talk a little bit about um, what initially appealed to you about CLIL? So, I mean, what what was it about CLIL that sort of grabbed you and, and made you think this is an approach worth pursuing.
0: Um, the So the lack of focus on explicit grammar, that is to say, I come from a background that even though the communicative approach is extensively used in Argentina, um, we still tend to focus on grammar, on explicit grammar, and we rely too much on course books. So to me... CLIL gave me the chance to do something beyond explicit language instruction and allow students to do something with the English they were developing. And therefore, CLIL provided me with that chance. And the feature of CLIL being, you know, authenticity plays a major a major part in, in CLIL. So that I found that really attractive. So, Authenticity in terms of um, the topics that I could use to help the students develop their English language proficiency, um, authenticity in terms of the um, the materials that I could use or the tasks that I could engage uh, learners in. So that was what attracted me. And another thing was that I always felt that English as a foreign language, as a subject, was always the uh the odd one out in the curriculum, so everyone else was working on something in spanish and then um and the teachers of English are doing something completely different um I wanted to change that, and I wanted the students to um become engaged in learning experiences uh through which they could see the curriculum as one and therefore. Uh, English had to adapt to that curriculum and to the learners' needs and their interests. And therefore, um, CLIL allowed me to um, achieve those aims, to make those changes. And it also allowed me to create my own materials and do something more challenging, more interesting, because by the time I found CLIL, I had been a teacher of English for more than 10 years. And, you know, when you get into that rut and it's your comfort zone at the same time, but then you could be in pilot light for years if you want, <laughs> and you can do the same thing again and again and again, even if you change the course book. But the whole game doesn't change at all. Um, so I wanted a change and Clil um, gave me that, that opportunity and... Again, I was audacious enough to adapt it to my circumstances because CLIL tends to be, or at least in theory, it tends to be more content-driven, whereas in my case, I was doing it more towards the language end of the continuum. Um, so that was also a challenge. First of all, in this bilingual school, I would teach this argumentation and critical thinking and then literature in English Uh, that wasn't necessarily English literature but it was literature in English so that was me doing more from a content um, driven perspective and then in um, state secondary schools in Argentina well in Patagonia basically I move towards the language end, so I would be still teaching English, but the topics that would sort of become the context of our our language aims um, came from, like, geography or history, chemistry, the arts, Um, and those were subjects that the students were, of course, taking at the same time, Um, so we would work when we could. We would work in tandem with the content teachers um, to know more about what they were working on or what they were about to um, to discuss in their lessons, so that we could um, we could, of course, contribute to that conversation. Let's say mm-hmm. uh, to the knowledge that the students were developing. Um, so that was what we did, and I say we because then. I would always be working with my colleagues um, We were always doing some kind of action research um, or practitioner inquiry so that we could understand and systematically <laughs> understand whether this was beneficial to the students. Of course, it was a lot of work because we had to start from scratch, um, but it was worth it. So yes, yeah, so we did that for a good number of years, and um, it was it was fun. <laughs> mm. It was fun. Right. Mm. Um, and so then
2: it sounds, and then you moved into so sort of teacher training and and yes, training teachers how to how to teach CLIL, mm-hmm. basically. Is that right? Um, did you did you meet any resistance from the teachers that you were training um, to Klil?
0: Yes and no. So the ones who didn't resist were those teachers who uh, were doing some form of ESP in high school. So to them, CLIL didn't sound that alien because they were still making connections between um, the subjects delivered in English or what the students wanted to do at university with English. So to them, that didn't sound uh, strange at all. We did get resistance from, and again, this is still a bone of contention uh, in CLIL, who felt that CLIL was or would be successful with students whose level of English was already proficient. So something like B1, B2 and and more. This is something to to discuss. Um, That if learners have a very kind of low level of English, then that will have a negative impact on the complexity of the content, of how the content is presented, and therefore you run the risk of watering down, damming down the content mm-hmm. um, for the sake of matching the mm-hmm. learners' uh, mm-hmm. language proficiency. So that was one um, area that you know was a concern for the teachers and the other area was linked to their own professional development. And, and qualifications because they felt that they had to teach mathematics or they had to teach um, science. And, of course, we cannot expect that because, you know, they, they haven't been uh, prepared for it. They, they are teachers of English, and that's it, like myself. Um, so that was, again, an area that didn't quite attract them. And the other one was linked to materials because, again, they had, you know, they would feel that they had to, and it wasn't a feeling, it was factual, that they had to start uh, from scratch. They had to develop their own um, lesson plans and materials. And again, fair enough, they didn't have the time and they don't have the time. So, those were the areas that kind of affected their interest in CLIL. And those are, are still today critical in CLIL development and CLIL research. And those are the things that you will find when you move from like theory or CLIL research into practice. Now, for example, currently we're working on this project, you know, about um, the language triptych, right? Um, the language triptych in CLIL looks at lesson plans, well, lessons offering students the chance to develop the language Uh, of learning, for learning, and through learning. But funnily enough, that triptych hasn't been uh, interrogated in practice. Um, So we are doing that and we want to see, well, we accept or we all agree with that triptych, but to what extent do teachers use it? How do they use it? And how can teachers come up with a theory of practice so that, again, we don't treat teachers only as implementers of someone else's um, theories and concepts and frameworks. So that's also interesting because, and this is one thing that I am particularly interested in. I am not interested, for example, uh, well, maybe that's because I'm not smart enough, but I am not interested in developing new models or new theories of CLIO or new frameworks. I'm interested in understanding what happens in practice, and what teachers do, because to me that's that's the answer to improving CLIL and that's the answer to uh, enhancing the experiences that learners and teachers navigate when they are within a given um, educational context. Yeah, that's my that has always been my interest. I think uh, what happens in practice, and it is very interesting again to. Look at what happens when I am involved in um, professional development initiatives, and how teachers grapple with clear features and guidelines and frameworks, and how is that translated into practice? Because you know, originally it's been um, thought out for one context, in the case of the European Union, but again, when you transfer it, if you will, to other contexts, quite Logically, it will, will it will not work in the same way, and that is and that is fine, <laughs> and it shouldn't work, um, because then that gives teachers or other people the agency and the ability to um, create and recreate their own understandings and their own practices uh, of CLIL, which happens with all approaches like CLT, TBL, in all my years of. Being a teacher and being a teacher educator, I have never found a single lesson that I would directly link to TBLT or CLT or any approach because we don't do that. (laughs) All of us adapt those approaches to our learners and affordances and context and That is right. This is what should be happening because if we carry on talking about uh, learner-centeredness and context-driven approaches, then that is what we should be doing instead of following an approach or a method to the letter. Otherwise, we are absolutely bonkers if we don't.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Wow. That's really interesting. Um, That sort of everybody has their own maybe their own version of. I mean, well, I was I was thinking before I was going to say own version of Clil, but then you know as you were talking about. You know when you watch a lesson you can say well there's a little bit of something which we could say is tblt and there's something which you know people might call a content you know whatever cbi but actually i I think you're right you know if somebody's really just focusing on on addressing the needs of their learners um they're probably absorbing lots of different ideas that they've read about and talked about but then Mm -hmm. like you said what it's what they put in practice that's important but so with that in mind and I mean, I'll, I was also thinking when you are talking about, you know, different uh, sort of everyone, maybe teachers have their own individual engagement with CLIL as an approach, you know, even like the Cs of CLIL, you know, they, they add Cs and they replace one mm-hmm. with another C. And, and, you know, it's it's this, and we get this idea that this it's the sort of big names in CLIL who are telling us, you know, what are the four Cs? Um, but I really like the idea that, you know, we, we have to kind of decide for ourselves and in our contexts. Um how are we gonna how are we gonna approach it?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think that of course, you know, this needs to be taken with uh, a pinch of salt with some caution because then someone else might say, but then that's like being too relative on almost anything, right? right. right. Not, and anything um, goes
2: and yeah, nothing Yes,
0: goes exactly. So right. and this is one of the criticisms about CLIL sometimes that it mm-hmm. is we might be stretching clearly a bit too much. Mm -hmm. And then we say, well, it is an umbrella term for all these models. But I guess what's common across the models is um, the focus on authentic topics that come from the school curriculum. So that, to me, Mm -hmm. is the main difference, right? Um, Because people might say, and they would be right in saying so that no matter the approach we use, there's always content, there's always a topic. We always talk about something, even if it is explicit grammar. So that's the content of my lesson. So um, to me, the main or, or the distinctive feature of CLIL is this uh, link to the uh, the school curriculum. Hmm. So that's one thing then we play around with that as teachers, right? And then there are links uh, between, for example, CLIL and um, TBLT because then CLIL has this focus on tasks and the way that tasks are developed, etc. And you were just saying something about uh, the four Cs. And what happens is, um, and I like that, I'm sure it's happening with other approaches, but I don't know much about other approaches. But for example, in the case of CLIL, The big names, so to speak, behind CLIL are very um, aware of what's going on in practice. And for example, even now, this book by um, Doe Coyle and Oliver Mayer called Beyond CLIL, they have repurposed one of the C's in particular within the Four C's framework. And the one that they have revisited is the C for Culture. So in the uh, original conceptualization of the four Cs, that C uh, stands for um, intercultural awareness and otherness, blah, blah, blah. But then, of course, teachers, like chemistry teachers would say, but how do I do culture in a way that is not contrived? So now their conceptualization of culture is more epistemological. So it's got to do with how knowledge is produced and understood and packed and unpacked across cultures or across contexts, and that is um, that is an interesting move because at least to me, that change comes from practice. So they looked at what teachers were doing or were not doing or were like struggling with, so that gave them the opportunity to say, "Well, no, this see." If we want it to work or if we want to keep the four Cs, then we need to repurpose that C uh, in CLIL.
2: You, you talked a bit about professional development. Um, what do you think are some some ways that CLIL teachers can sort of direct their own professional development?
0: I would say teacher research and action research, and this is something that we are about to uh, to do with Kendall Coyle at the University of Edinburgh. So we are, well, we will be working with a group of teachers coming from the Basque country. And what we want to do is we will give them a brief overview of CLIL, the pluriliteracy model in particular. That's something that DOE has developed over the years. And once we get the basics of CLIL, then what we're going to ask teachers to do is to develop a few lesson plans for one class they have in particular, and they will implement those lessons and they will collect data to see um, the impact that that lesson has had on their learners in terms of their content development and language development. And then they will report back. And drawing on those findings, then they will start the development of new lesson plans So, again, it's connected to teachers being able to direct their own understanding and implementation of CLIL and helping them or giving them the tools to arrive at the theory of practice around CLIL so they will be developing, like, enhancing their understanding of CLIL from practice. But it is an informed practice. It's not just, you know, uh, what I feel I should be doing, but this is based on um, pedagogical frameworks. And at the same time, they will be developing. We hope they will be developing their research skills, so that then again they could be in charge of their own professional development. And this is something they could do um, on their own, um, either individually or within an institution. Um, so I find it, I find it really empowering. Again, we've got to be um, realistic about it. And this is something that I usually um, ask myself. I am a big fan of um, teacher research, and I wish that all teachers you know, were uh, involved in doing research. But I've got to be realistic in the sense that teachers are not paid for that kind of activity. And it's very easy for me to say that they should to teach a research because I have a job where like 40% of my time is for research. <laughs> so uh, I am expected to do research, but we cannot expect teachers to do it because, again, um, they would be relying on their own like personal time to do it and their own resources, unless, of course, they are... Uh, formally supported by their schools, but that's not usually the case. <laughs> it's quite the opposite, right? uh, because they want or they are expected to teach and to deliver like quality teaching. Nevertheless, <laughs> um, teacher research is a good avenue for developing um, professionally.
2: So, I mean, so you're talking about you know s- support from teachers' institutions. Um, are there any other? Um Kind of considerations or or I guess support that you think uh, in terms of CLIL courses I, sp- I guess specifically but may- maybe not exclusively um, but sort of what other considerations do you think should be taken at the institutional level?
0: If CLIL becomes a top-down initiative so this is an institution say you know from now on or from the next school year, everyone will be doing CLIL, or some teachers will be doing CLIL, or we will be doing CLIL in some subjects. Then it's got to be something, of course, well planned and resourced. And um I would encourage institutions to start small. And this is what happens in Europe, anyways, that sometimes students do one subject. So from the school curriculum, they only do one subject um, following a CLIL approach or maybe just one term or one unit within their syllabus is um, CLIL-oriented. But before implementing it, teachers need to be trained, right? So teachers need to be supported and if institutions want uh, their teachers to work, um, to do some kind of co-teaching or work um, in pairs or so this, you know, this collaboration between content teachers and language teachers, mm-hmm. then that needs to be factored in, like, costed in mainly. Mm-hmm. So again, that's important. And we also need to consider like resources for teachers, uh, materials, etc. Um so that then it doesn't become a burden. Of course, this is something that will shake an institution in the sense that you will be not doing what you've been doing for years. And thankfully, there will be no publisher who will come up and say, you know, we've got the right book for you folks. Um, There are books in the market which are clearly oriented, but of course, there will be no publisher, I think, that will... um, produce a textbook that directly matches uh, your school curriculum, unless you are in a context where you have one curriculum, just one for a whole country. And even if that were the case, then you would have uh, variations um, for different reasons, but mainly for like learners uh, and, um, and the context in which you are. So Those would be the main considerations. So we would start with teacher development and then the creation, the elaboration of um, a CLIL-orientated curriculum so that then it becomes an institutional move that could be sustainable. And I think that's one of the key elements of CLIL implementation, sustainability. More often than not, CLIL is implemented from, which is fine, and this is something that, I did for a good number and a good number of years in in Argentina. It is more of a bottom up approach, so you do it with your own students, and then you do it with your fellow teachers. But you don't need anyone's blessing, so to speak. Um, but the thing is that if you get tired uh, or if teachers change, then that initiative just dies out. So maybe. That shouldn't be a problem, right? But uh, I think if you want to see the changes in the long term, uh, then you do want to make sure that um, it is sustainable and that that is something that teachers are happy with and that they find um, empowering and that they feel that they are being um, supported to do so and to make changes, to that CLIL curriculum as it is put into practice.
2: So I have a lot more questions, but I think um, maybe we're getting close to sort of wrapping up time. So just just to finish, um, you mentioned the Beyond CLIL uh, book a little bit earlier. Um, could you maybe talk about any sort of um, hopes or directions um, that you would like to see CLIL develop in in the future?
0: I would like to see CLIL being more context-driven. So far, um, let's say, European CLIL is the norm. So whether we like it or not, we tend to compare what we do with the CLIL, let's say, um, implemented in the European Union. So I guess that we all need to be more mindful of um, context and then we need to feel more empowered and we need to feel more autonomous to say, you know, this is the way we do it and um, <laughs> deal with it, right? <laughs> and we do it this way because of X, Y, Z, right? And those have to be, of course, logical um, uh, reasons anchored in in in, uh, in our understanding of the field of pedagogy and, um, and so on and so forth. So I would like to see more of that, um, which I guess it's happening, but it's not reported. You know, it's not part of the literature. Um, So we would like to have that. And then the other thing is that perhaps CLIL can help language teaching in general to be less explicit grammar-dependent and lean more towards the, um, the language awareness uh, side of things to develop teachers' and students' understandings of um, understanding of literacies, of uh, genres. <clears throat> um, so there will be more of that, and there will be opportunities, I suppose, to help learners reflect on languages, reflect on language and languages, regardless of the language um we teach. I've had cases uh of like students and teachers who through CLIL have developed a more nuanced understanding of their own language, of their L1, so how they um become more aware of um for example sociolinguistics or um, sociolinguistic aspects of uh, of language and dialects and varieties of English or like Spanish or academic literacies. Um, so that is something that might start off with CLIL but can, I suppose, like you know, penetrate the curriculum and be something that could help us educators um, be more aware of. So I think that, and that is something that again, Coyle and Mayer. Um, discuss when they put forward their pluriliteracies uh, model, because then the focus is on the literacies that you find in the curriculum. So not just when you do CLIL, but when you do any kind of, um, when you create any kind of um, teaching and learning situation.
2: Okay, that's great. I think that's a a nice place to, to end. Uh, so thank you again, Dario, for being our our first guest uh, on Clil Voices. Um, I'm, sh- I'm sure it'll be a, a really interesting listen for for our hopefully growing body of listeners.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, no, thank you very much. I, um, you know, what I enjoy is that these opportunities allow me to um, understand myself because this has not been scripted or. To be honest, I didn't prepare anything beforehand.
1: So, okay. Well, yeah, that was a really nice uh, conversation, Matt, with uh, Dario there, and yeah, I I enjoyed listening to that.
2: Yeah, great. It was it was uh, it was uh, nice as usual to talk to Dario. Um, Yeah. Do you have any any thoughts or reflections on uh, on what we were talking about?
1: Um, There was a couple of points. Like it it was interesting to hear um, about well about how. Dario kind of got into CLIL in the first place and, um, particularly, um, like his observation that the English language curriculum and the first language curriculum, um, I think he said that they weren't aligned mm. and how he kind of, he kind of found CLIL to be a way to kind of bridge and, and integrate them with one another. Um, yeah, it was, it was mm. nice to hear about that. Um,
2: yeah. Yeah. It was interesting for me to hear, I mean, his perspective of looking at CLIL in, in uh, uh secondary education in that case, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. And how, yeah, like you said, I think the integration is maybe a, a, a key part of it and something that, I mean, the kind of CLIL that I teach at a Japanese university, it feels like it's a, you know, an approach that we use in the language education. Um, but mm. it seemed the way mm. that he was using it was much more like a, a sort of overhaul of the whole system and, and affected all parts yeah. of the, the, the educational experience for the students.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, he was kind of going beyond like my kind of understanding of, of CLIL being kind of very language focused. He was, he was, I think he mentioned plu- plural
0: mm.
1: at one point and how CLIL kind of contributes to the development of literacy in general so it's kind of a much more kind of encompassing um, um, thing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Again, I think it's it's a really interesting uh, thing to think about. Um, yeah. Again, I guess just as, as language teachers, you know, we we think of CLIL from the language side and, and just as a way for, you know, to get students to practice using the language. Um, but if we view it as a way that, you know, it's just p- another part of the student's education and it does link to all the other subjects that they're learning.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There was a nice quote actually that I made a note of. He said that it, uh, I think he was talking about CLIL, but he says it's, um, it's contributing to the conversations of what the students were learning. Hmm. So the students were already learning about maths, already learning about science and the, the English language curriculum was being used as a way to, to open up that conversation further. So mm-hmm. I quite, I quite like that, uh, that idea.
2: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as a, again, as a language teacher, I kind of wonder, you know, how my students view my cl- cl- class, uh, I'm sure they think of it mainly as a, as a language class, like, okay, you know, this is my, this is the English class I have to, to, to take as part of being a first year student. Um, but, uh, like I wonder how much they, you know, I, you know, I wonder if students in in their minds, university students in their minds sort of if they bracket different types of courses in different ways. Mm. Um, Mm. and if, if putting more of a focus on the content, um, does, sort of break, break those boundaries down a little bit, if that
1: makes sense. Yeah. 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 I see what you mean. Yeah. 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 There's some other, other points that I liked. Um, He talked about this idea of sustainability and um, you know, how, how CLIL can be both personally and institutionally sustainable. Hmm. And um, yeah, just thinking about my own kind of um, context, like, I think that comes down to knowledge sharing um, and, you know, collaboration between content and language teachers. Um, I think that for me, that seems to be the key to sustaining this, this kind of interest in, in integrating language and content is, is collaboration and and knowledge sharing amongst (laughs) uh, yeah, content and language teachers, which doesn't always happen and and should happen a lot more, I think, but yeah that that seems to be one way to sustain sustain uh, these approaches.
2: Mm. Yeah I think that that would be a great idea if um if there is you know just across the board if there's more collaboration with uh, language teachers and and other faculty in in the university.
1: Yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah I guess this kind of relates to this this project overall this clear voices project overall is is connecting all these different you know, these different groups of people together.
2: Yeah. And maybe that's, that might even be a, you know, type of, uh, podcast episode that we produce where we can have language teachers and, and, um, non-language teachers, but, uh, you know, people who have an area of expertise in a certain area of content, um, yep. engaging with each other.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But that's, that's it for uh, our inaugural opening first episode. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed listening to it. Um, We have an email address, uh, clilvoices at gmail.com, all one word. Um, and we're also on Twitter as well at clilvoices again, all one word. Um, and yeah, we hope to kind of spread the word of this, this podcast and hope to make, um, a series of episodes this year and beyond hopefully. Um, but yeah, thanks for listening to episode one of Voices.